morning. Just a quick reminder, ladies, tomorrow is our Women Faith in the Workplace event at 7 o'clock p.m. in Hannah Bloomquist's apartment in Andreas. Now it is my pleasure to announce our second speaker for the Calling Beyond Covenant series, Caitlin Newsom. I first, <laughs> I first met Caitlin at a soccer camp the summer before our freshman year here at Covenant. We have been friends for nine years and roomed together for four of those years. Caitlin graduated from Covenant in 2013 with a bachelor's degree in community development. She went on to work at Chattanooga Sports Ministries, where she now serves as the executive director. It has been a joy to walk alongside Caitlin and see the ways the Lord has worked in her life. It has been an encouragement to experience her passionate desire to follow him even when following him is difficult. Caitlin is a great person to talk to you about calling because of her sensitivity to the spirit and her constant fight to determine what the Lord's will is for her life. Please join me in welcoming Caitlin. Um, it's really, really good to be here with you this morning. I uh, know a lot of you uh, just from being around up here on campus, and some of you through CSM, and others of you know me as Grace's sister or Sarah's sister, so it's always really humbling to be known as their sister instead of uh, them, my sister. Uh, so as the oldest, you're not used to that. So really humbling and good for me. So um, I know this chapel series is, calling, uh, is on calling after covenant, but before I go into these past few years, um, after graduating and some things I've learned about calling, I want to give you a taste of what my time here was like. To be really honest, I honestly never really wanted to go to covenant. Having grown up in Japan as a missionary kid, <clears throat> I remember coming back to the States on furlough and driving through Chattanooga and seeing the outline of Carter and the chapel up on the mountain and hearing my mom talk about what an amazing school it was and uh, how so many missionary kids and pastor's kids went there and how I could go there and play soccer. And, um, <clears throat> but to be honest, I, I didn't really want to be pegged as the missionary kid. Um, I had done everything I could to not fit the mold um, of that classic stereotype. So. Growing up in another culture does set you apart, I think, from the rest a little bit, but I was bound and determined not to be one of those. So with that kind of attitude, uh, you can imagine the kind of person that I was, especially to those I suspected weren't a part of the in-group. Somehow I still managed to end up at Covenant. Um, I still remember the first day I was here. Uh, it was during the summer at a camp the soccer freshmen all came to. Uh, Catherine Realdryer, who was just up here, uh, was the first person I remember meeting. You'll have to get the reenactment from her, but let's just say it wasn't the most warm introduction. I had heard from someone else that she was a pastor's kid from Alabama, and that was enough for me to barely acknowledge her and size her up to be someone I was definitely going to keep my distance from. In those beginning years here, I was the one who always sat in the back of the class. I rolled my eyes at the kids who were constantly raising their hands and asking this question or that question, and I never tried to be buddy-buddy with my professors, which apparently you're supposed to do. Um, I was also the one who was pretty rude to my freshman roommate. I'm not proud of that. Um, I had us quickly 
move our Andreas room around so that all of our furniture was in the middle of the room facing away from each other, so it looked as close to two separate rooms as possible. Uh, and that way, I you know, didn't have to have as much interaction with her, and it's terrible, um, but that's, that's how it was. Um, <clears throat> I kept to myself and to the people I decided uh, had measured up. I doubt, though, if you had met me, you would have realized what was going on in me. I developed a pretty impressive chameleon complex, so I could be whoever you wanted me to be. I was, however, totally, totally confused about who I really was. And on top of that, much of my time here was spent um, in unhealthy, codependent relationships that held me in tight bondage. When I graduated, I had zero clue uh, what the next stage of my journey was going to look like. Although I had some idea of what I thought it should look like. I had studied community development, um, and ideally I was going to move to some economically poor country and do a mix of community development and missions, uh, but the reality was my emotional health was uh, in shambles. Anxiety and depression plagued me. I uh, ended up moving into a house in St. Elmo with a group of friends and working in the two-year-old classroom at a local daycare, which <clears throat> honestly felt more like a glorified babysitting job that I had to pay taxes for. I want to press the pause button here and ask you a question. What is a Christian called to in this life? I'm very aware of how calling is defined here at Covenant, big C, little c, I remember all that. Uh, but how is it that you understand it. Because how you understand calling, and I'm talking specifically how you understand it as a believer, uh, will really influence your life and your decision making. Is calling simply a vocation that feels like it's a good fit for you? Is calling a special assignment that God has for your life? I want to encourage you to wrestle with that question. Wrestle with the points I'll be making today. When I graduated, I probably would have answered that question this way. My calling is to make Jesus known in every arena and in every small space in my life, in my relationships, in my work, in my attitude, in the way I spend my time. My calling is to trust him, obey him, and in every way live out Colossians 1.18 in Christ, or excuse me, in all things Christ preeminent. Pretty good answer, right? I may have been somewhat of a punk while I was here, but I knew the right answers. I knew what was expected of me. After about a year of working at the daycare, I was convinced by a friend that I should try working as a summer soccer coach at a local ministry called uh, Chattanooga Sports Ministry, CSM. I had heard of it, but my first thought was, how in the world is a confused, kind of Japanese, kind of American going to be able to relate with urban Chattanooga? I reluctantly applied, but when I started working with my little team of kids, all kids from Guatemalan immigrant families, I was blown away. These kids are awesome. This ministry is awesome. Here's my chance to live out my calling, I thought. So I worked as a coach, and at the end of the summer, they hired me full-time as program director. That was about four years ago. I'm going to hit the pause button again. Did you see what I did there? Functionally, my understanding of calling was this. In this particular area of my life, the CSM area, this is where I make Jesus known. This is where my gifts and passions and place all come together. So at least in this season of my life, this is my calling. So using that kind of logic, let's think about my daycare job. Was I not called there? Was that not my calling? 
Was that not a place where I was being called to make Jesus known, regardless of the level of passion for the work I was engaged in? As I've thought through the years post-covenant, I've realized something that has significantly changed my understanding of the concept of calling. I've boiled them down to three main uh, callings that every Christian has that in turn shape the various particular callings that we have in this life. So first, we're called to surrender to God's authority. Second, we're called to be who God created us to be. And third, we are called to go on mission with God. First, I want to talk about our call to surrender. God doesn't force us into anything. He hasn't forced us into salvation. He allows us to be a part of his story, but we can have vastly different parts to play. As Christians, we can truly be a part of his work of restoring and bringing hope to this broken world, or as Christians, we can even be a part of trying to create a name for ourselves, worshiping the wrong gods, and wasting our time living selfishly and inwardly focused. It all comes down to how we answer his call to follow him. His call to take up a cross and die, which paradoxically is the same call to be raised to life and to be filled with life. Christians talk a lot about surrender. Countless songs talk about it, the act of letting go, giving up, allowing his will to be done. What is surrender, though? In a war context, it's literally the act of ceasing resistance and submitting to the authority of your opponent. That's the dictionary definition of surrender. In relationship to God, it's the same. It's stopping our resistance to God and it's submitting to his authority. That's what happens when you make an intentional decision to follow Jesus. And it happens over and over again in the life of a Christian. It's when you pray for people you dislike instead of slandering them. It's when you let others take your place because you know it will bless them. It's holding your tongue when you're tempted to lash out. It's taking steps of faith and saying, not my will, but yours be done. We also have the choice of surrender during the dark nights we cry to Jesus out of not understanding the windy and jagged path that Christians so often seem to be on. We ask God, why this? Why me? Why do I have to struggle in this way? Why do I feel so alone? In each of these moments where we don't understand or are feeling alone, or are tempted to follow the cravings of our flesh. There's a subtle and quiet invitation to surrender. And quite honestly, it feels like it will restrict, restrict excuse me, suffocate and imprison. Maybe that's what Eve felt like in the garden, with a fruit that was gleaming before her eyes, perfect and untouched, like she had no freedom to take that bite. And with that slowly forming and bittering thought of, God who claims he's good is actually keeping me restricted, suffocated, and imprisoned. She was facing a moment of surrender. And it's the same moment we face. Do we trust that he isn't withholding? He isn't trying to make us miserable? He isn't squeezing the life out of us? Here is what we know that maybe Eve didn't. This God will go to any extent and every extent to be with us to take every single bite of that fruit that creates the enormous gap between us and God, every bite that has ever been past, present, and future, and take the blame. Take the shame it created, take the deserved anger it brought, the deserved death, and completely surrender. It's one thing to view God as good and loving because he created and brought life. 
It's quite another when we view God in light of Jesus. It changes everything. It answers the questions, does he love me enough to come close to me even when I've chosen an abortion or when I've lusted after my friend? Sorry. Um, Does he love me enough to invite me back again and again even after I leave again and again as I'm accusing him of not being good and loving? He answers those questions with an emphatic yes in Jesus. It's that truth that has transformed the way that I live. It's given me this ability to step into the unknown, an ability that I didn't have before because fear held me in its arms. It's that truth that has allowed me to be full of joy, even when what I thought I needed, I don't have. He's filled those places of emptiness over and beyond. And I think ideally that testimony should be the story of every Christian at every stage of life because it's exactly what he's promised us. But really for me, this life, this surrendered life that I'm talking about is definitely not the life I've always lived, even as I've known Jesus. It's the life I'm still learning to live and I get to choose to live that he's inviting me into. Just because we know Jesus doesn't mean we're surrendered to him. Knowing Jesus and running after Jesus are two very different things. This is our first call as Jesus' followers. Trusting he is who he says he is, laying and laying our own agenda down. And it's a unique invitation. It's personal. He's calling your name, and he's calling my name, and he's saying, hey, I love you. Believe I love you, and come and follow me. He went out of his way to meet the Samaritan woman, who no one liked, so he could offer her living water. He looked at the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who came and touched him in the crowd. He looked at her in the eyes, and he offered her something thousands of times better than physical healing. He spoke Mary's name after he resurrected as if he knew her personally and loved her immensely. He loves us. So when he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me, cross being another word for a method of execution. He says it out of great love for us. He knows that our surrender to his authority is the first step into the good life, the life we were created for and called to. As we say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow him where he goes, we're stepping into freedom. Because the truth is, ever since the fall, men and women have not been free. We've been held in sin's bondage. Jesus' call call for us to submit to his authority is a call out of the bondage of our sin to be who we were created to be. We were created to be in right relationship with God, and we were each created uniquely with different personalities and passions, gifts, and talents. So the second point I want to make about calling is this. God has made you uniquely, and he calls you to be who he created you to be. You are called to be you, and I'm called to be me. And I know this point may sound trite, but bear with me. I think it's incredibly important uh, in regards to calling. A couple weeks ago, I was in Houston for some meetings regarding sports ministry in North America. It was a small group of people from all around the country, and we were talking about the needs we see in North America and how we can equip and train believers uh, for disciple-making, specifically through sport and play. I remember looking around the room at one point and realizing I was in a room full of Apostle Pauls. I'm not kidding. These people I was sitting with were pioneers, driven, unafraid, 
full of vision and obvious gifts. As I sat there, I found myself thinking, I have nothing I can offer or contribute here. God, why am I here? Later, when I was reflecting on that time, I realized something. I don't have the same gifts as many of the people in that room. God has given me different ones. I was sitting there insecure and afraid of speaking up, but really the people in that room needed to hear what I had to say just as much as I needed to hear what they had to say. We're a body made up of different parts. If we only had Apostle Pauls among us, for example, who would stay with the churches to lead them and help them grow? In Matthew, Jesus tells the parable of the three tasked with uh, investing various amounts of talents they were given by their master. A talent back then was a large sum of money. Uh, some estimate it to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the first guy was given five talents, the second was given three, and the last guy was given one. If you know the story, you know that the person with the one talent was almost like me, sitting in that room full of Apostle Pauls. He, he was afraid and he didn't invest his talent. He didn't use it, he buried it, and he missed out on what his master was calling him to do. This is really practical. What has God given you? What are you good at? Are you structured and systematic? Are you free-thinking and inventive? Are you a go-getter and task-oriented? Are you good at relating with people? Do you have a unique ability to make people feel comfortable and seen? Are you single and have a lot more time on your hands than your married friends to give to others? What quote-unquote talents has God given you? And the answer to that question isn't divorced from the context you find yourself in. Where are you? Obviously, right now, you're a student at Covenant, but you'll find yourself in all sorts of places in life. Maybe right now you're in Chow One, or after you leave here, you're probably going to be in a place where you're looking for a job. You might find yourself working at a daycare, like I did, or at a bank. Um, these are the places, wherever you find yourself, these are the places you live out this calling. How can you use who God has made you to be with the experiences you have, the gifts you have, to serve others around you on your sports team or in your dorm room or at your church? Ask God to show you what he's given you. And, he's, and what he's given you is for the purpose of being a blessing to others. And that takes me to our last point. We're called to go on mission with God. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, it's clear that God is a God on mission. He gave Adam and Eve the mission to take care of the world he created. To Israel, he gave the mission of being a people set apart from the rest of the world to be a blessing to the, na to the nations. Then Jesus steps in with the mission to restore us to right relationship with the Father through his death and resurrection. And to the disciples, Jesus gave the mission to bear witness to his death and resurrection. The part of the story we're in is obvious. The mission we've been given is to bear witness to Christ. But my guess is most of us don't wake up in the morning thinking, okay, on mission with God today. God, who would you have me be a witness to? That certainly isn't a part of my daily routine, although I'm starting to realize it probably should be. Paul coins this mission that we've been given as the ministry of reconciliation that through us, God is making his appeal to the world around us to be reconciled to Christ. The obvious follow-up question is, okay, what does it practically look like to go on mission with God to reconcile others to himself? 
That sounds really intense. These are Jesus' words at the very end of Matthew. He tells his disciples, Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I've commanded you. I will be with you as you do this, day after day, right up to the very end of the age. That was the message translation or paraphrase. Um, and I use that because sometimes I think when we hear the Great Commission, we, we don't think about what we're really hearing because um, we're so accustomed to hearing it. So first thing Jesus tells us to do is go. And second is we help others know Jesus and obey his teachings. Where are you going? We clearly are all called to go. And I don't mean to suggest we need to go very far, although some of us should go far and are called to go far. But I do, suggest, I do want to suggest that every disciple of Jesus should be able to say, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going with the intent to be a minister of reconciliation, God making his appeal through me. It could be the daycare classroom or the neighbor across the street or your hall or your team here at Covenant. There are countless of people and places to go to because there are so many who need to know who Jesus really is. Who are you going to? Before I wrap this point up, I do want to say one thing about disciple-making. There's something that's mysterious and hard to wrap our minds and hearts around, but we have to try. God's call to us is to be on mission with him, to go and be a witness, but at the same time, he really doesn't need us at all. It's helpful to think about it as an invitation to be with him where he is. It's like a dad with a 10-year-old son, and he asks his son to come help him mow the lawn. The reality is that as the son is pushing the lawnmower and doing the best he can to cut the grass with his dad, his dad is right behind him with the weed whacker getting all the places that the son is missing. So it's not that the dad needs the son to cut the yard with him. His son's not very good at it. It's simply because he wants to be with his son. God wants to be with us, and he's inviting us to be with him where he is, on mission with him. So in summary, we are called to walk surrender to the authority of God, grow into who he has made us to be through the work of the Spirit, and go on mission with him to reconcile the world to himself through his Son. What would it look like for you to see yourself, your life, excuse me, in this way? If that's the direction you go in your life, you will find yourself in some really interesting, sometimes difficult, and sometimes really amazing situations that you never imagined for yourself. I can promise you that. For me, I've had to die to this idea that I need to be in some exotic part of the world sharing the gospel right now. He's asked me to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is ironically the most church city in, the nation, in this nation. He's asked me to raise money for CSM, a part of ministry that I absolutely never envisioned myself wanting to do or liking. He's asked me to grow in my leadership as a director of the ministry. I never used to see myself as a leader. He's asked me to be really transparent to a lot of people about some of my sin struggles and past hurts. He's asked me to live being a bridge between very different cultures and socioeconomic uh, contexts in the city. Those are just some of the things that he's called me to right now. 
He's made billions of unique people calling us to an all-satisfying relationship with himself and to speak the good news of the gospel wherever our feet take us. We work with him to bring goodness and order, healing and life, grace and mercy, and the same undeserving love that has won us to himself. It's a beautiful mission, and it's a beautiful invitation. Every single one of us is invited. But before a million seeds sprout to produce a bountiful harvest, one seed has to die. Sacrifice and suffering are like that. An incredible story unfolds, but just like any good story, there are plot twists and a cost and pain before you get to the end. We're called into an amazing and beautiful story with Jesus, and the call involves surrender. What surrender involves is deep, deep affection and love and trust. God doesn't force us to surrender. We choose it. We choose to surrender because we trust the one we're surrendering to. And we trust when we know we're loved. That's the crux of the matter. It doesn't matter how much we want to do for Jesus. When it comes down to it, what he's asking from us isn't something we can give unless we know and believe that his heart for us is one of love. So in thinking about your calling, and I close with this, the best place to start is sitting alone in a room with Jesus. Is your heart convinced of his love for you? Truly, truly to the point that if someone you were to love, you loved, were to die today, you would turn to Jesus, not in hatred or in accusation, but in brokenness and pain and in questions and in need of comfort. Or if you lost everything you owned, or if you never got married, or if you spent years of your life in a job you hated, do you trust he loves you? How you think about your calling will depend on your answer to that question. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are um, weak people. We are prone to wander and we need you so much, Lord. God, I pray for every student in this room. Will you show them your calling for their life? Will you help them surrender to your son? And will you help each of us, Lord, to believe how much you love us? God, I pray that we, as we live by the Spirit, we would also walk and step with the Spirit. Every day we need your help to do this, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.